3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boongarong people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders, past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded, and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning on this fine Wednesday morning. Morning, Claudia. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Pat? Very good, very good. I'm just, uh, if, if you're wondering, listeners, I'm keeping my eye on. Uh, there's a bit of a soccer game going on at the moment, and unfortunately Tottenham have not got up. So Ange Ball has lost their first game, Claudia. I think, Pat, if you were in charge of this show, it might end up being yes. Wednesday sports. I know, but, um, I know. I won't, yeah. I won't bore the listeners too much with it. It's breakfast, current affairs. Yes, Come back I know. to the important things. Um, <laughs> how are you this morning, Sonera? Uh, very good. Um, I'm just preparing for the rainy weather today. Ah. Yeah, y- it's yes, it's not good. It's pretty wet. Yes, it's going to rain all day, apparently. Um, yeah. What do we have on the show today? We've got a, a very mixed show today. We have um, a series of beautiful poems from Poetry Month because August is Poetry Month and I thought that would be a nice way to round off the month. So we have a variety of um, poems from Australian poets emerging and established that we'll be scattering through the show this morning. We've also got... Uh, an interview on genocide and resistance uh, which will be connected to a public forum taking place this week so Grace will be bringing that to us first up and then we have a fascinating interview with a film director and historian from Iran talking about uh, the 70th anniversary of the coup that took place in 1953 where the former Iranian Prime Minister, the democratically elected Prime Minister, was uh, overturned. And, of course, that still has ramifications today. So we'll be hearing that. And, Pat? Yeah, um, uh, coming later in the hour, we'll be speaking to AFL Fans Association President Ronnie Isco regarding the footy finals. There's a bit of a ticketing issue, scheduling, uh, and also accessibility to the stadiums itself. And on to headlines. Um, Yes, starting off, Anthony Albanese will announce the date of the voice referendum today. The Prime Minister is in Adelaide and will be making the announcement from there today and this will mark the start of a six-week-long campaign for the referendum, which is expected to be on October 14th. South Australia was chosen to be the launch state because it is believed to be the swing state that will be decisive in determining the majority vote, according to multiple government sources. 
The Australian Electoral Commission is also releasing about 13 million information pamphlets to go out all over Australia next week. And on to Reserve Bank and inflation. Incoming Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock said that climate change will affect the Reserve Bank's ability to manage inflation in the future. Bullock was at the Australian National University last night to deliver the annual Sir Leslie Melville Lecture. There, she talked about the uncertainty climate change poses to the economy, saying that hotter, temperature and more, hotter temperatures and more extreme weather will disrupt businesses, damage property and lower productivity growth. At the event, six protesters have interrupted Bullock's opening speech, taking aim at Bullock's previous comments about waiting to see the unemployment rate rise by 4.5%. Meta suspends our, uh, on to other news, Meta suspends RMIT Fact Lab from Facebook after criticisms from Indigenous Voice No Campaign leaders and some conservative media outlets. Meta also claims that the temporary suspension was due to RMIT Fact Lab failing to renew their membership with the International Fact Checking Network. Nevertheless, the IFCN has confirmed that Fact Lab's fact checking meets all its standards and adheres to the group's code of principles. RMIT University stands by their fact checking organization, maintaining that its output meets the relative standards. Rec- required to tackle viral misinformation and disinformation. And that's all the news we have for this morning. Excellent. Okay, we're going to go to a couple of announcements now and then we'll be back with you soon. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast, 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. So we're going to hear our first segment from Poetry Month. And Red Room Poetry is the the host of these uh, lovely poems that we're going to hear this morning. 
And just as a bit of a background, uh, Red Room Poetry's vision is to make poetry in meaningful ways and it collaborates with the whole spectrum of poets, communities and partners uh, for positive impact in areas such as the environment and application amplification of First Nations youth and marginalised voices. So they aim to make poetry highly visible, vibrant, relevant and accessible. And Poetry Month, which takes place every year in August, is uh, part of the way that they do that and bring it to uh, a wider audience. So we're going to start off this morning with Stuart Barnes and Sea Grape. Stuart Barnes is the author of Like to the Lark, in which he reimagines the poetic form and fearlessly explores topics of illness, death, rape, remembrance, ecology, love, and joy. And Glass Houses, which won the 2015 Arts Queensland Thomas Shapcott Poetry Prize, was commended for the 2016 Anne Elder Award and shortlisted for the 2017 Mary Gilmore Award. Hi, I'm Stu Barnes. Happy Poetry Month. I'm coming to you from Durhamble country. The poem I'm going to read is called Sea Grape, a Decaying Flourishing Sestina. Sea Grape, a Decaying Flourishing Sestina, with a nod to Lawrence Schimmel. An expanse of green, green hands, green being after close green being turning up the heat. Green table in an evening out itself. Green jam of evening. Green grocers' wawas. Swirling green curtains. I am a vase of trampolining green. An evergreen vampire, the greenest enjambment. But overseeing purple's plunge to the table is my number one purpose. The tabletops are bounding oohs and ahs. Agitate adjacent teeing grounds, a soulless bowling green that mock the bouldering green of my botanic garden and table the schlock of ever-disagreeing fire-wielding thieves for whom being is bewildering as wild green. O machines unstable and ungreen. On the lagoon, turn tables of green circle, yellow, Pink and green notes surge moonwards, keying the sky's lyre, whose emceeing amazes the rarest white label, the moon. I drink in the in-between days, unpinning seasoned green hands, easing soft bronzes into being, casting classic sweet-scented stars at my pond's centre. The tablelands bees leaf through their timetable, the razzle-dazzle, the zreeing of chitin and hamuli cannot jam on the brakes. I give the green light. Soft bronzes pars greening. Streams of ivory lodestars preen at green fingertips. Green jam jars, green eyes squeak. Green babel fountain leaps where it pleases, turning out 100 green peafowl. I am being easy, but daydreaming about aquamarine.
And that was Stuart Barnes with Sea Grape. Over to Grace. Yep, thank you so much, Claudia. So now we're going to be. Thank you so much, Claudia. So now we're going to be speaking to Chloe De Silva, who is our fellow Tricia presenter and Green Left writer. We're going to be discussing about this Thursday's upcoming uh, the upcoming forum called Genocide and Resistance. It's a public forum. Please note that this discussion actually has mentions of genocide and genocide against First Nations people. So if this is not your cup of tea. You can tune out just for not, for the this next fifteen minutes, and you can come back and listen to our show then. So, joining me this morning is Chloe De Silva. Good morning, Chloe. Good morning. Thank you, Grace, for having me on the show. I'm coming to you from Boomerang Land. I hope you can hear me clearly. Yes, we can hear you perfectly well. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Chloe, can we first get you to just give a bit of explainer? What is the true meaning of genocide? What has been people's misconceptions about it? Yeah, um, sure. So genocides are not inevitable. They are created. So some may think that humans have always fought this way, but this anti-human behavior is taught to us through racism, hatred, homophobia, sexism, Islamophobia. We learn those. And the ruling class needs to develop hateful ideology to convince the people that another group of people are inhuman and inferior, and that it's okay to do horrific things to them solely because of their identity, racial, ethnic, religious. And often genocides are targeted against the most vulnerable people in society. I think one of the misconceptions about genocide is that it is this spontaneous mass murder by a population with racist ideas, but it's actually systematically organized by elites. Um, Their crimes, genocides are crimes that are organized, they're premeditated, and having prejudices doesn't lead a population to participate in large-scale destruction like killing. And Dr. Mongzani, one of the speakers at the forum tomorrow, is an expert on genocide, um, specializing in Buddhist racism and, and state crimes in Asia, particularly against Muslims. I've taken the information from his definitions of genocide, and it's where public opinion has to be mobilized against targeted communities, a targeted community. And then the infrastructure of hatred and racism has to be established. But genocides are not just about killing a large number of people. So what distinguishes genocides from other types of crimes is that genocides can take place in peacetime as well as war. Mm. And lastly, not all genocides look alike. So as long as the killers plan and design a course of action to destroy the targeted population on whatever ideological grounds. Um, That's what we call genocide. And disturbingly, in many cases of genocide, um, even the perpetrators are the ones carrying out the mass killings, like, for instance, in in Rwanda. They see their killings very much as self-defense, and they feel morally vindicated or justified because they say things like, we are defending our nation and our race and our territory. Mm, I see. And so without giving too much away, what will this forum going to be about with the focus of uh, the genocide? Well, the speakers will talk about whether genocide can be stopped and how we can build resistance to it. And, you know, there's trauma from genocide that can be 
uh, passed through the generations. So we know here in Australia, First Nations people experience intergenerational trauma, and that's rooted in the colonization, the racism inherent in the system, the grief over the loss of land and culture and oppressive colonizing policies and practices that are ongoing. Um, so, you know, we'll talk we'll talk about some of these things during the forum. People are welcome to to contribute. I mean, during the forum, we'll also we will be talking about how and why genocides are created and the ways people around the world are fighting back, and how we recognize genocides, recognize oppressed peoples, and how we can support their right to self determination. Um, we'll be learning from members of different ethnic groups who have suffered from murder from unjust arrest, torture, rape as part of a genocidal campaign and how governments can divide and conquer a population through campaigns of hatred. Mm. And like if you if you see what's happening in Manipur in India right now, there is mm. currently a genocidal campaign being waged against the Kukizo tribe. Um, so there's racism being whipped up against the BJP, the ruling party of India. Mm-hmm. And that's an example where divisions in the community are being made to justify moving people from their land so their land can be mined and resources like palm oil can be extracted for profit. Mm, I see. And who are, going, who, are, who are the other speakers that are going to be in this forum uh, alongside Dr. Zani that you have mentioned? Is that correct? Yeah. So there'll be um, Dr. Zong, Mong Zani, who's a Burmese scholar, writer and organiser and revolutionary and outspoken support of the Rohingya community. He's actually Mm. living in exile in the UK and he's been an outspoken critic of Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the leader of the National League um, for Democracy, but she stayed silent when she could have spoken out against Myanmar's genocide against the Rohingya. And they are the world's largest stateless population. Um, Another speaker we're having is Robbie Thorpe, who's the Gonai Gondich Maraman and Community Radio 3CR presenter, and he'll be talking about um, the genocide of the First Nations people. Mm. And the third speaker is Sitara Mohammadi, who is a, a World Hazara Council spokesperson. So the Hazaras, um, you'd know, is one of the most persecuted groups in Afghanistan. Um, for over a century, the Hazara community has suffered from targeted discrimination and persecution and massacres because of their ethnicity. Mm. And so why has this public forum been organised? Is it towards a specific topic or what, why, what's the main reason here? Uh, well, there are lots of reasons. <coughs> Excuse me. No government has acknowledged that a genocide took place. Like here in Australia, I mean, despite the referendum, there is this denialism. Australia is... A very rich country and one of the reasons it's so rich is because it was founded on the dispossession and genocide against the First Nations people and no major party has ever recognized that. Um, the most recognized genocide is probably the Holocaust, the Nazi mm. genocide against Jews and Roma in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. But after the Holocaust, the world said never again. But there have been a number of genocide since then and uh, they're not always recognized as such because whether or not a genocide is recognized or commemorated is highly politicized. Here in Australia we do have 
genocide denialism because, um, and, and there is, you know, also denialism in other countries too, like Myanmar or Sri Lanka, where there's distortion and denial of the genocide of Tamil people. Um, Israel is committing genocide of Palestinians and actually advised the Sri Lankan regime in its campaign of dispossession. They advised on slow genocide, slow motion, a systematic effort to make the lives of Tamil people unlivable. So, you know, it's important to organise forums like this because when a genocide is being planned, it is possible for people within a country to recognise it, to stand up, especially the majority of the population, to be able to speak out and say no and give solidarity to people being the people being targeted. Mm. And so, Chloe, just one last question uh, for you. For our listeners who uh, will be attending this public forum, is there anything they need to prepare before joining the discussion tomorrow? And where and how can they participate in this forum? Yeah, thanks, Grace. So the the public forum, Genocide and Resistance, is going to be held tomorrow, Thursday, 31st of August at 6.30pm. It's going to be held in the green room at the Multicultural Hub, which is on 506 Elizabeth Street, and that's in the Melbourne Melbourne CBD opposite Victoria Market. We provide a meal from 6pm, so you come in early if you like and have dinner with us. Um, how it usually runs is the speakers are introduced first, and then there will be time for discussion where you can ask the speakers questions or make contribution. So it's an open, democratic forum where everyone can participate and we've got really interesting speakers coming from different angles from different um, communities and we encourage anyone to come along anyone is welcome you don't have to be an expert on genocide or you know or part of a persecuted group to be able to participate it's you know you don't have to really prepare it's just a you know just come along it's a way of learning about different persecuted groups and probably meet a few people from those groups, the different communities that have experienced genocide. So we invite you know, anyone from First Nations communities, uh, the Tamil community who are still experiencing genocide. Um, it's a chance to know more about different genocides happening, taking place around the world, and how genocides happen and how we stand up against it and show solidarity with people resisting and fighting for their survival and and how we must always campaign against the racially motivated, um, state-directed violence that we call genocide. Mm, I see. And and sorry, just Chloe, just sorry if I put you off suddenly. Just to confirm, we also have someone who we can contact in regards, just in case someone needs to get a bit of information regarding the public forum. Yeah, you can contact me. Um, I'm one of the organisers of the forum, so my number, I can, is it okay to just call out my number over the... Yeah, if you're willing, it's up to you. Oh, good. Yeah, well, it's it's public anyway, so my number is 0484-938-949. And if you go to the Green Left website, Mm -hmm. because it's been organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance, if you go to um, the website and go to get involved and look at the events, it's listed under the activist events. So you can find more information about it there. We also have a Facebook event that you can have a look at. And yeah, please share the event around with anyone um, you think would like to participate. 
That's awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Chloe. It's been really nice having you on the show. Thank you, Grace, and Wednesday Breakfast for the opportunity. I hope to meet you and some of your listeners at the forum tomorrow night. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chloe. Have a nice day. Thanks. Thank you. And that was Chloe De Silva, who is our fellow 3CR presenter and also a Green Left writer, where we were discussing tomorrow's Thursday's upcoming Genocide and Resistance Public Forum. The discussion will have mentions of genocide and uh, genocide against First Nations people. So if this wasn't your cup if this is not your cup of tea, you can sit out for the public forum, but it's also up to you to go there and join a discussion on a very important issue. So for those listeners who didn't manage to catch that just now, the public forum is happening tomorrow, 31st August, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. from at the Multicultural Hub at the Green Room, 506 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne CBD, opposite of Victoria Markets. There's also dinner from 6 p.m., so if you would like to have some food before you join the discussion, you can head there earlier. And yes, you can also contact Chloe at 0484 938 949 just in case if you need to contact someone for information in regards to the public forum. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the Solidarity Movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, this event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 Years of Solidarity and Struggle. A 3CR supporter.
Listening to 3CR 855 AM on a Wednesday morning, and that was Cranes in the Sky by Solange. And now on to current affairs in Iran. It's been 70 years since the 1953 coup in Iran against the former Iranian Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Provoked by the U.S. and U.K.'s interest in Iran's location and oil reserves, the Iranian army overthrew Mossadegh in favor of restoring Mohammad Reza Shah as Iran's leader. The result of the coup still haunts the nation today, as many believe that it sowed the seeds for the Islamic revolution and anti-Sah sentiments. While the involvement of the CIA in the coup has been much debated, the part played by the United Kingdom has remained blurry. Now, a documentary film called Coup 53 reveals new details about the UK's involvement, including the less publicised role of British intelligence in assisting the coup. Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! speaks to Taghi Amirani, the Iranian filmmaker behind the documentary, as well as Ervand Abrahamian, 
an Iranian, an Iranian historian and author of Oil Crisis in Iran, From Nationalism to Coup d'Etat, about the coup and the reasons behind it. We are now going to listen to the interview in two segments, so please tune in next week at the same time to hear more. But now let's take a listen to the first part. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to look at this 70th anniversary of an event that reshaped the Middle East, the 1953 U.S. and U.K.-backed coup in Iran that overthrew Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. The aftershocks of the coup are still being felt today. The coup came two years after Mossadegh nationalized Iran's oil industry. He argued Iran should begin profiting from its vast oil reserves, which had been exclusively controlled by the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. The company later became known as British Petroleum, BP. The coup was led in part by a CIA agent named Kermit Roosevelt, the grandson of President Theodore Roosevelt. The crushing of Iran's first democratic government ushered in more than two decades of dictatorship under the Shah, who relied heavily on U.S. aid and arms. The anti-American backlash that toppled the Shah in 1979 shook the whole region. In a moment, we'll be joined by two guests who've researched the coup for years. But first, we turn to the trailer of the documentary Coup, Nine, coup 53. In 1953, the United States, together with Britain, participated in a coup in Iran that got rid of Mossadegh. Mossadegh and his government were swept from power in favor of General Zahidi. 300 killed and hundreds wounded is a conservative estimate. The British government has never officially acknowledged its role in the coup. I don't think at any time we really planned a coup d'etat. These words have not been heard or seen for over 34 years. Evidence that has the potential to turn a dark chapter in history inside out. Your British counterpart was in fact blank. Could you tell me something about the man? Blank. Norman Derbyshire, take one. He was somebody who felt that there were things to be said that hadn't been said. A member of the British government who was involved in the assassination of the chief of police. How did it come to this? So they tied him up, strangled him, and shot him. Were you involved in Afshar II's assassination? Yes. My father is a real prime minister. <laughs> the coup in Iran is shaping politics to this day. The United States does not want democracy in the Middle East. That's the trailer of the documentary Coup 53, directed by the Iranian filmmaker Taghi Amirani, who's joining us now. He made the film with the Oscar-winning filmmaker Walter Murch. We're also joined by Yervan Abrahamian. He's a retired professor of history at City University of New York, Baruch College. His most recent book is titled Oil Crisis in Iran, From Nationalism to Coup d'Etat, the author of several books, including The Coup, 1953, The CIA, and The Roots of Modern U.S.-Iran Relations. We are talking about an event 70 years ago that has shaped not only the Middle East, but I think you could say geopolitics in the world today. 
Um, Ervand Abrahamian, if you can start off by talking about the significance of this moment—I mean, a year after the same model would be used to overthrow um, the democratically elected leader in Guatemala—but what happened, why the United States and Britain were so hell-bent on toppling democracy in Iran? Well, the official argument that is constantly repeated was it was to save Iran from uh, communism and the Soviet threat. In reality, when you look at the documents, there was no communist threat or Soviet interest in Iran. The main concern of United States was that if nationalization in Iran of oil was successful, this would set a terrible example to other countries where U.S. oil interests were uh, present, countries such as Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Indonesia. So the, the nightmare in Washington was that if you have a successful nationalization in Iran, this would be a contagious disease that would spread throughout the world, and this would change the whole balance of power. Uh, and this was really the main interest. But of course, American politicians don't want to uh, admit that economic issues are at play with their foreign policy. So they they underplayed this. They never mentioned this publicly. What they insisted was the so-called uh, communist threat. The British, in fact, were quite honest about this. They said they used the bogey of communism uh, to basically uh, persuade people that the, uh, the, the coup was justifiable. But, uh, Professor, when you say there was no communist threat uh, to take over the country, but there certainly was a vibrant uh, uh, communist party uh, in Iran at the time, the Tudor Party, which backed nationalization, even though it also opposed uh, Mossadegh on, on a bunch of issues. Uh, wasn't the attempt of the United States to use and actually, as I understand it, some of the some of the documents revealed recently show that uh, the uh, the British and the U.S. actually tried to to stir up the population in Iran against the communists by actually backing false flag operations in the weeks before the overthrow. They did that. But, you know. The two-day party was, you can say, had its strength in the factories, in the street. You can dem they de organized strikes, demonstrations. But people in Washington, people like Roosevelt, the Dulles, Eisenhower, were hard-nosed realists. They knew that there's a difference between you know, organizing a demonstration in, <laughs> in Tehran to carrying out a revolution or a coup. And the, the, the CIA reports from Tehran, these are the actual CIA analysts for, on the ground, they said that the two-day party was not a threat. Uh, it wasn't even prepared for for a coup. It wasn't talking and thinking of a coup. And it uh, even the, the the readings that the, was required for two-day party members in, in, in 1953 was uh, Lenin's work on ultra-leftism, infantile leftism. So a, a communist party was thinking about a coup or a revolution would not be using Lenin's infantile leftism as a main 
uh, instruction book. So th there was, this was an imagined threat. And uh, they, of course, the press, especially the New York Times, played up with this. They exaggerated the two-day strength, the size of their demonstrations, in order to create the mood in the American public that there was actually a major, uh, major threat coming from the left in Iran. Turn to an excerpt from Coup 53, where we see our other guest, the filmmaker Taghi Amirani, as he meets with Malcolm Byrne at the National Security Archive. I am the deputy director and research director at the National Security Archive, which is a non-governmental organization based at George Washington University. There are at least three internal histories mm -hmm. that the CIA has produced in probably the late 1970s. One of these items was produced. Is this when you write to them asking for information? Well, this is the response letter to me saying we're enclosing this document that you requested. And then right. here's the document itself called the Battle for Iran. The Battle for Iran, which is still going on. This is what's new about this release, covert action. Uh -huh. In earlier versions, which you will see, this is all blotted out. We'll keep that out. So we can take this one out. There's still a lot that's not there. I like the fact that there's still a lot of blank pages. They're supposed to show you what was there. Right. What was new was essentially this page. Uh -huh. The military coup that overthrew Mossadegh and his National Front Cabinet was carried out under CIA direction. They had never, to my knowledge, officially acknowledged their role right. in the coup. I'm standing in front of a filing cabinet of a drawer full of documents that essentially changed the fate of my country and changed my fate. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what happened to me, what happened to my family, my, 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 it's just like how your lives, your destiny, your fate is yeah. encapsulated. Yeah, in a half a file drawer. In a half, this is it, this, this just changed Iran. This, this box mm -hmm. of papers. Mm -hmm. In this next clip from Coup 53, Taghi Amirani reads from the interview transcripts he found with the MI6 spy Norman Derbyshire that were done for the British TV series End of Empire. Excellent. If we want the coup in detail, and even if not, why did they select bits of interview from him? cut it out, paste it into a script, probably edit it into the film. But he didn't make the final cut. He's not in the finished film. In a remarkable stroke of luck, we've discovered that the British Film Institute archive hold all the unused footage from the End of Empire Iran episode. Freely available to the public, but never digitized until now. 36 cans of film, 520 minutes of interview, among which we hope to find Norman Derbyshire. And it's recording. Great. We digitized the entire collection of End of Empire given to us by the BFI. We did not find Norman Derbyshire. And in this clip from Coup 53, Taghi Amirani 
goes through the photographs and film clips he accessed from End of Empire, the British TV series about the end of the British Empire, as he searched for footage of the MI6 spy, Norman Derbyshire. British Embassy staff photograph, Tehran, class of 1952. And this is Norman Derbyshire. Looking very much the cool undercover spy. Derbyshire would have been 29 when this photograph was taken. He was born on the 1st of October, 1924. And he died on the 17th of June, 1993. His CIA counterpart was Stephen Mead. We found his kind of film, even though he's not in the finished film. Stephen Mead on Iran. This is what End of Empire production team thought of Stephen Mead. A young 69, hatchet-faced, like a bit part player in a B-movie thriller, and above all, good. This is brilliant. Wow. Your British counterpart was in fact blank. Could you tell me something about the man blank? Your British counterpoint was, in fact, Norman Derbyshire. Could you yes. tell us something about the man, Norman Derbyshire? Oh, I didn't know him at all before I met him. What kind of a man was blank? What kind of a man was Norman Derbyshire? What kind of a man was Norman Derbyshire? And why has his name been blanked out in these documents? And in this clip from Coup 53... The actor Ray Fiennes reenacts the part of the Norman Derbyshire interview transcript found after he was interviewed, but did not appear in the End of Empire series. Norman Derbyshire, take one. What you're about to see here as the team sets up at the Savoy is the result of our failure to find any film or audio of the Derbyshire interview. So we've resorted to bringing his words to life. Ah, oh, there it is. Okay. Rafe Fiennes is about to speak Derbyshire's words recorded back in 1983, telling us things the British didn't want anyone to hear. And these are the bits that the people who made the original documentary loved, which is also what we love. Sorry, I'm getting drawn into the... <laughs> mm -hmm. Just imagine how I felt when I came across it. It was one late night in the office. Again, a clip from Coup 53. Tagi Amirani was an Iranian physicist who became a filmmaker and directed this documentary, Coup 53, released August 19, 2019, the anniversary of the U.S.-backed, MI6-backed, or I should say created coup that overthrew the democratically elected leader of Iran. Um, this is an astounding documentary. This is uh, a documentary, Tagi, the likes of which we rarely see. Um, if people are wondering why Ray Fiennes is in it, the famous actor, it's because he was replacing the uh, cutout words of this uh, British spy. If you can talk about what Derbyshire means in terms of British history in Iran, and also, on the U.S. side, 
Kermit Roosevelt, who will later talk quite honestly about how he went on behalf of the Dulles brothers, right, uh, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA and the State Department, uh, John Foster Dulles, who had represented um, uh, corporations interested uh, in overthrowing democracies, and overthrew Mossadegh. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to join you, and I'm delighted that you find the film astounding. And if it's astounding, it's entirely due to Walter Murch and the incredible cast of interviewees, including Professor Abrahamian, along with Stephen Kinzer and David Talbot and Malcolm Byrne, who were the backbone of commentary and knowledgeable information on the coup. Uh, in the absence of the British official admission to their leading role in this coup, Norman Darbyshire's interview and its transcript stands in for that admission. Imagine you making a film about the most important, pivotal event in your country's history, which didn't just affect Iran, but the region and the world, as we've, dis we've discussed and we will discuss more. And you find the man who was essentially the writer and director of this coup, in his own words, uh, revealing the most incredible amount of detail, going rogue for whatever reason. We can speculate of, of, as to why he went rogue as the leading MI6 officer in charge of the coup, giving this incredible interview and then vanishing. And for whatever reason, the end of Empire producers, Brian Lapping, Norma Percy, uh, Mark Anderson and Alison Roper could not or did not use this interview in any form in their film. We got lucky. I got lucky. I'm not the world's best documentary maker, but I am the luckiest in the team I got together, the interviewees I managed to persuade to appear, and just a lucky break to come across this transcript, which was, ironically, in the basement of Mossadegh's grandson in Paris, until I showed up and found it by chance. Uh, and my mind just blew by the level of revelation and staggering amount of detail. That was Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! speaking to Taki Amirani, the Iranian filmmaker of Crew 53, and Iranian historian Irvand Abrahamian about the 1953 coup against the Nationalist Prime Minister of Iran and the less publicized role of the British intelligence in assisting the coup. If you liked this segment, stay tuned for the second part on Wednesday at the same time. Thank you to Democracy Now! for sharing this audio. You can also catch Democracy Now! on um, every Monday at 10am on 3CR. We will now listen to some more poems for Poetry Month. With support from the Adez Foundation and Moonrise on the River, the Emerging Poets Residency supports emerging Australian poets with a paid stipend and creative residency on Ewan Country, Bermagui. Applications for the 2024 residency close at 5pm on Thursday 31st of August. Find out more at redroompoetry.org. Lulu Houdini was one of the inaugural recipients of the residency, completing her residency in June 2023. Lulu is a proud Gamilarai Gumaroy woman, arts worker, writer, nurse and birth worker. She creates and explores around connections with poetry of land, sea, sky and story. 
The main themes she explores are texture, country, identity, traditional language, queer nature, sensuality, love, and finding our way back home to the Gunimara, the mother's hands. Here's Lulu reading her poem, Mangrove Girls. Mangrove Girls. Potato scallops from the takeaway that always smells like a camel station, but that my sisters and I can't get enough of. Pimples show up on our faces because of it. I tell mum that there was a price increase and that's what's happened to the change. Her smiling, keeping the peace. Us, already dividing our chips between the five of us to our separate corners of the butcher's paper. Careful not to cross over into each other's chip country. I'm there. I'm here. Old time and new. I'm still just a little brown girl from the mangroves of North Mianjin, trying to find her way back to a home she's never lived in. I touch the brown sand there in Wara and ask my mum why my skin, like this sand, is in between colours. She tells me why and says the particles and I have a sameness too, but I feel closer to the neon green sea worms navigating their way through the mud canals. It looks so easy to do from up here. They're not hidden people like we were. I watch my sisters and brother grow up here. Scooter races, beach cleans and night walks dodging cane toads. Grazed knees and bruised arms. Some from the bitumen, but mostly from each other. Our scars keep us from forgetting where we've been and who we belong to. To Wara and each other. Bawa means older sister in my great-great-grandmother's language, our old-time mother tongue. Bawa is also the word for backbone, strong for carrying little fellas. I carried them on my hip when they were small, hid my pencils from them when they were growing. I remind them to be respectful to elders now that they're big. I tell my mum to take them to Clever Doctor Man to get their ears checked because they don't seem to be working. Oh well, love them anyway. I try to shelter and encourage my young ones. I watch those mangrove girls grow up. The silver, sandgate ocean still glitters the outline of our faces long after they replace all the cement that holds our names. The expressionistic shapes of mangrove girls. August is Poetry Month, a national initiative designed to increase access to poetry in all its forms for all audiences. Presented by Red Room Poetry, we're celebrating contemporary poets and publishers from the 1st until the 31st of August with a newly commissioned poem, reflection and writing prompt from some of the country's leading artists. Tune in to hear from poets, authors, spoken word artists, musicians, playwrights and more. Check out the full Poetry Month program online at redroompoetry.org slash poetrymonth. Red Room 
Poetry has been making poetry in meaningful ways for 20 years. Celebrating our 20th year, A Line in the Sand is a special anniversary volume published with Pantera Press. Bringing together over 80 pieces from leading poets and public figures from our archives, the anthology also includes a foreword by revered poet and the first ever Red Room Poetry Fellow, Ali Cobby Eckerman. You can buy a copy of the anthology through Pantera Press and all good bookstores. We also encourage you to request a copy through your local library. Here's author, academic, poet, activist, historian and essayist, Tony Birch, reading his poem, How Water Works, which appears in the anthology. This poem was commissioned as part of Writing Water, Rain, River, Reef, a project which commissioned celebrated poets and invited public submissions to peer below the surface and reimagine our essential relationships with water. Find out more about the project through our website, redroompoetry.org. Hi, uh, my name's Tony Birch, and this is my poem, How Water Works. Cup of hand, skin and bone, this water well a beating heart of molecules, life, one, two, three thousand years. Twice daily rises to gently fall again, close stories asking, who are we within this world? Let water run, circle, settle, be. Sun of Arctic water moving slowly south, sleeping, ebbing, rising, upwelling loops of life. Seconds, centimetres, patience slowly, spirits your beauty and humility. Shape shift onward through air and bodies entwined with other waters, in plants, in soil, in country. From pregnant clouds, rain on my roof to birth my love. August is Poetry Month, a national initiative designed to increase access to poetry in all its forms for all audiences. Presented by Red Room Poetry, we're celebrating contemporary poets and publishers from the 1st until the 31st of August with a newly commissioned poem, reflection and writing prompt from some of the country's leading artists. Tune in to hear from poets, authors, spoken word artists, musicians, playwrights and more. Check out the full Poetry Month program online at redroompoetry.org slash poetrymonth. You're tuned in to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and we just heard Tony Birch with his poem How Water Works and before that Lulu Houdini, Mangrove Girls. We're going to go to a track now. This is Archie Roach with I've Lied. Sitting here in a lonely old guest house I'm sure that my life is all through Scratching free and watching the grey mouse I'm making love 
to the memory of you. For without you, I'm weak and uncertain, and I feel so naked and cold, like a window without any curtain. My innermost feelings unfold. The drink I just had. It wasn't as bad as the first, but drinking won't do when it's only for you. I thirst, I thirst for your kiss. It quenches all burning. It's sweeter. Then the sweetest of wine. Now you're gone. I find myself yearning for the love that I left behind. Nobody can heal the pain that I feel inside. And if I said I'm strong and I'm never wrong, I've lied. I've lied. CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And you are back on 3CR 855 AM. You can catch up with the show on 3cr.org.au. Go to podcasts. Go to Wednesday Breakfast. Now, we'll be speaking. Uh, it's going to be AFL finals coming up very soon. Uh, Aussie rules, if you're unfamiliar with it, listeners. Uh, and now we'll be speaking to AFL Fans Association President Ron Isco regarding the uh, final situation, regarding tickets for fans and inclusivity for all. Ron, welcome. How are you, Patrick? Very good, thank you. How are you this morning? Very good, thank you, and very excited 
with the finals coming up. Yes, definitely. It's a, it's a different time of year uh, when finals come along uh, in football. And, and listeners may know uh, the excitement that can be around Collingwood, uh, on Smith Street especially, if the Pies do get up. Uh, it's always a, it's a great sight to see. Uh, I only walked past today a few murals already getting displayed with uh, AFL players and AFLW players, which is, ingre- which is great. It's terrific, and I think if uh, the Pies do win the grand final, uh, the whole of Melbourne will be shaking. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely, Ron. Uh, so, Ron, uh, what, what's your makes of the upcoming final series? You know, how does the Fans Association discuss with the AFL to make sure fans um, know what venues are going to be at, time's going to be announced? How do you sit down and discuss that uh, with the governing body? Sure, so we uh, do meet regularly with the AFL, but we don't get involved in the actual timing mm-hmm. and venues for the finals. That's an AFL decision. Um, all we say is just let's make it as fair as possible for all the clubs. And uh, they come up with their uh, formula, which they've done over the years. And uh, the clubs also have an input. And uh, so, you know, if we're going to have a six-day break or an eight-day break or seven-day break, make sure it's fair for all the clubs from one week to the other in the finals. So that's uh, how the AFL come up with the, the, the venues and the timing. Yeah, definitely. It's a tricky one given the fact that you've got to also factor in if an interstate club uh, wins the first final, um, then those fans have to travel to the next state and the likes. That, that's the case that's given, Ron. In terms of um, this year's final series, there's a match playing on a Thursday night, uh, qualifying final between Collingwood and Melbourne, and then the Friday we'll see Carlton play Sydney in the first elimination final. Uh, Saturday, Saturday we'll see Brisbane play Port Adelaide at Saturday night, and GWS will play St Kilda at the MCG on Saturday at three twenty. Do you feel like the fixturing's not as um, clear to fans? Like a Thursday night game, for example, Ron. Um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, in terms of you know the, the, a, lot, a lot of people feel like it's impacting them in terms of they've just you know they've got work on the Friday and the likes. The fans, have fans come to you and going, oh, we'd like it if it's a Friday night game and you play the last final on the Sunday. So fans have come to us and uh, expressed their views. Some fans have said they're not happy with Thursday night because the next day is a school day, it's a work day. Regional fans have travelled a distance to come to the MCG, then they have to go back home and can't get back at a reasonable time. So some fans have said, no, we don't like Thursday night. I understand that and I empathise with them. However, the sheer excitement of the finals Mm. and the fact that your team has a chance to progress through to the grand final, whatever day, whatever time the final will be, if it's midnight on a Wednesday night, Collingwood and Melbourne fans will be there. If it's midnight on any other day, Carlton's fans will be there. So, yes, I understand Thursday's not convenient, but the vast majority of fans are so excited about the prospect of winning the premiership, they'll go anywhere, anytime. Yeah, definitely, Ron. In, in that space as well, it comes to ticketing, Ron. Uh, we've already seen that the tickets have been bonkers. I think Car- Collingwood Melbourne was sold out. Uh, for listeners listening, Collingwood Melbourne was sold out, sold out like MCC in five minutes. Uh, also, I think AFL members membership was it was all sold out very quickly uh, for the game on Thursday night. Do you do you think it's getting harder for fans to get tickets due to the fact that clubs have a hundred thousand members? Um, across both AFL and, and probably club membership and it, what happens in that space in terms of trying to make sure that the person who's been to every game of the, of the year is able to get a ticket, um, supposed to the person who may go for only four games. And, you know, every, every fan's different, um, but how do, you, how do you see that space um, uh, uh, getting fixed or sorted in the future? Sure. So the, the reality is the Melbourne-Collingwood game 
it's really hard to get tickets mm. and some people have missed out. There's no question about that. And, and, and sorry for those members and fans that have missed out. But the other games, I think if you get on the uh, ticket agencies at the right time and you're patient, I think you'll get tickets. So I personally, I don't barrack for um, St Kilda or GWS, but I'm going to get tickets at 9 o'clock. I'm going to sit there and wait and get a ticket. So I think for some of those other games, you'll get a ticket. Um, and I think that the ticket agencies need improvement, and a lot of fans will agree with me, but it has gotten better over the years. So the hard games to get to, it's always going to be hard. Like for the grand final, it's virtually impossible to get a grand final ticket for your member that goes week in, week out. And mm. again, it's a t- difficult one. But if you made the MCG a 200,000-seat stadium, fans will still miss out. So yeah, yeah. there's no simple solution. But for this week's finals, other than the Melbourne Collingwood one, I think you'll be able to get uh, tickets for the other games. Yeah, that's great to hear, uh, Ron. Uh, given myself, he's uh, going to be trying to nag some tickets for the, the Carlton uh, Sydney clash on the Friday night. Uh, you know, g- give some context as well. Uh, what does the association do in terms of helping those who are uh, wanting to go to football um, but in a more uh, friendly environment, uh, I know that you know Marvel implemented the, uh, the sensitivity room. Is that something you suggested that the MCG could have as well to cater for everyone? Um, not specifically. We haven't really had fans asking us about that in particular. Um, but um, any any sort of those requests uh, that fans tell us about, and there's uh, we take all these sort of issues to the AFL straight away. And generally, the AFL are aware um, of any issues or any extra needs that fans have. Mm. They're pretty much on top of it. All we do is, when fans come to us, we uh, you know collate the views of fans and pass them straight on to the AFL. And the AFL tell us, yeah, we're aware of that. We'll, we'll, we'll do what we can. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel that the AFL um, comes to you more than regularly now, given the given the discourse we have in the media regarding the the national sport? Look, um, this year in particular, we've uh, met regularly with quite a number of people at the AFL and uh, they're very receptive. And in fact, um, even before this interview now, I had a chat to the AFL just to clarify a couple of things. Mm. So um, we working, we have a good working relationship um, in collaboration. And uh, the most important thing is that we want, the fans want, the best fans experience. The AFL want to give the fans the best fans experience. And by talking to one another... Um, we're going to get there and it can always improve and we'll always look for improvements but the the whole aim when we talk to the AFL is we want the best fans experience we are the best fans in the world we've got the best game in the world and we Mm. deserve the best fans experience that's the the view I take Yeah definitely Ron in terms of that space as well do you feel that um, there's been a few incidents this year that have marred that fan experience Um, there's only a game recently where Western Bulldogs and Car- uh, Richmond, sorry, were playing a contest and uh, there were eggs thrown on the ground, um, I know, with um, and the likes. Do you, do you feel that we've just had a few incidents where I think people have just gone over overboard? Have you, have you ever thought about what could be done to better uh, make sure the environment is more family-friendly? Sure. Let me say that 99% of fans are fantastic. Mm. The few, let me call them rat bags, that do things like throw eggs... <laughs> Um, or uh, abuse players, we don't want them at the ground. Mm. And so any of those people disrupt the 99% of fans that are fantastic, boot them out. We don't yeah. want them. Mm. It's as simple as that. Ban them. Um, because 
why should the one percent or half a percent ruin it for the ninety nine and a half percent? As I said, I reckon we're the best. When you look around the world, uh, fans at sporting uh, venues, we are the best behaved in the world. There's no question about it. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's just it's been an interesting interesting situation, Ron, in terms of that space uh, in the last you know uh, years gone by, um, especially in the social media space as well, Ron, where fans now have access to players, media officials, they've got a lot more time uh, to text them and go, hey, well, you didn't like that kick you did or that behind or, or the likes. Uh, do you do you feel also as a as the president, you have an opportunity to make sure that those fans um, keep in line? Do you do you try and cut, toe the line? Um, yourself? Well, I think the players need to also be mindful that once you become an AFL player, hmm. there's going to be some criticism yeah. and they've got to either not be on social media as much, not look at what the ratbag fans might say mm. and listen to what the club says, what the coach says and what the people around them say. But you're going to get that in anything. Mm. Um, I don't know, movie stars and singers, where they get uh, criticised too. So it comes with the territory. Um, I don't like the fact that uh, fans, you know, criticise players too much. Mm. I, don't, I don't do that. Um, I just say thank you to the players. Mm. That's mm. just me. And I think the majority of fans uh, don't really go out to abuse them. But um, anyone, any fan that abuses players or umpires or any other fans of the footy or racially vilifies, they're going to be banned. Mm, mm. Do, have you um, uh, have a ch- had a, able to have a chance with, with the new AFL general manager that was announced this week in Laura Kane? Have you had a chance to discuss with her what the future for AFL fans could be in terms of memberships, but also inclusivity and, and, and that space? I know it's only just brief that she was announced on uh, sure. Monday. Yeah, so... Um, I will be catching up with uh, Laura. She uh, she knows uh, about the AFL Fans Association and she knows that uh, I, I would like to speak to her and uh, I'll just need to give her some time and space because she's very busy. Yes, tonight. of course, of course. But the yeah. idea would be that uh, just like I uh, speak to um, uh, Kylie Rogers and uh, Jay Allen um, and uh, I have actually met with Andrew Dillon, um, chopping a few names, yes. uh, the idea would be that when there's a fan issue, I just need to speak to the relevant person at the AFL about it. So mm. whether it's um, inclusivity, it could be racism issues, speak to Tanya Hosh. If it's to do with football operation managers, speak to Laura. If it's to do with the information, I can speak to Jay. So we're well connected. And as I said, the AFL very responsive and we've got a good working relationship. So in due course, I will certainly meet Laura and she's a... A great appointment. She's got the experience. She's got the expertise. And uh, she said at one of her press conferences that she will make herself and her team uh, accessible to fans. Mm. So that's great news to hear. Then um, we're just going to see it in action, which I believe uh, we will. Yeah, that's that's a great thing to hear, Ron, given the fact that, you know, in the past with the AFL and comes to its fans, a lot of a lot of people have felt uh, disconnected by the, the hierarchy and uh, those uh, who support the team each week by week. In terms, Ron, I find it fascinating, you know, there was a bit of a discussion regarding St Kilda. Uh, they were arguing, there was some argument that they should have played at Marble for this final against GWS. Do you think the fans, those St Kilda fans, deserve to play that final at Marble, given the fact that they've they go there regularly, and the MCG they only go, I think, twice a year and three times a year, if I'm if I'm correct. Yeah, it is their home ground, and uh, we certainly have heard from fans saying, "Hang on, uh, we finished higher on the ladder, mm. um, and why aren't we playing at home?" Um, the 
AFL have decided that because of the capacity of Marvel is 55,000 mm. and they're expecting 65 to 70,000, rather than having the issue, we missed out on tickets, we couldn't see our Saints play mm. in the first final, they prefer to say, hang on, we should be at Marvel, but no, you're going to play at the MCG, so an extra... I don't know, fifteen or 20,000 people can see the game. Mm, yeah, so definitely. Be able to balance that home ground versus fans missing out. And they've said, well, we don't want fans to miss out. Yeah, definitely. And that's the key thing. Saints fans especially don't want to miss out wrong, given it's their first final uh, for a decade in Melbourne. So it's it's great to see in that space as well. In terms of, you know, coming back to that also as well with missing out and the likes, do, do you also have had discussions about trying to... I know it's hard at the moment, given the fact that inflation is a, is a major issue and cost of living. Do, do you think do you think that the food prices could be dropped in the in the future as well? I just I do find it myself going to the game and seeing that a you know a bucket of chips costs you know six dollars for example or a beer will cost eight dollars when I can go to the the Amy Park and watch my uh, I can watch the soccer for example and I can pay I think two dollars less. Do you, I know it comes down back to demand and supply and inflation and the likes, but do you, have you had the thoughts of maybe hang on we could really work in this space in the future? Sure. So I know that uh, the AFL came out earlier in the year to say that food prices have, the prices have kept frozen uh, from last year and the year before, but some things have gone up, like beer has gone up, but they've tried to freeze the food prices, and they're well aware of the cost of living pressures that we're mm. all under. Um, so they're doing their best, but a lot of fans tell us, well, why are people complaining about the cost of food prices when you can bring your own food in? Yeah. <laughs> Just bring your food. So a lot of people bring their own food. I personally... Uh, bring a bottle of water uh, because you can get them at Coles or Woolworths for a dollar yeah, or something yeah, of course. rather than paying $4 there. Um, but I buy maybe a bucket of chips and that's it, but I eat before I go to the game. So, yes, cost of living issues and people are finding it tough, taking two kids to the footy and they want chips and a hot dog mm. and a pie or whatever. It does add up. But you can bring your own food and you're allowed to take your own food in. So... Uh, you know, I guess you can plan around it, um, mm. maybe eat before you go to the game. But yeah, yeah. yes, the, the AFL recognise that they've got to do something about the food prices. They've kept the food prices frozen, whether they can reduce them. I know they have specials sometimes. I think there was one where $3 pies, and I know they have specials where they have chips and water for 7 bucks instead of mm. $9 or something. So they do have specials. They're trying their best. Can they do better? Of course they can do better. Yeah. Uh, can the caterers do better? Of course they can. Mm. Um, and we'll always ask and uh, recognise that there are ways to get to avoid it too. Yeah, definitely, Ron. It's a, it's an interesting space to see in the future, uh, given given fans' demands uh, for food as well. It's always a it's a key. It's a bit of a luxury when you go to the football. You know, a bit of excitement mm-hmm. when it comes to that and. Uh, it's something that fans can take on into the future as well. Bring your own food. That's a that's a great great little message because I think people forget that sometimes when they do go to the footy um, or any other sport is you know we have the luxury of going off and you know you can bring your sandwiches or you can bring the hot dogs in the thermos and and the likes which is always a, a great thing. Uh, just just to finish off, Ron, where do you where do you see the fans association going in the future in terms of your work and uh, what what would what would you say to the listeners out there who want to join along? Sure. So uh, we uh, started in 2013, so we've been going for a decade. Uh, We're a bunch of volunteers. Uh, We have a committee. We have representatives in every state. We have uh, members and followers on social media of around 15,000. 
Um, so what we exist for is to give fans a voice mm. and to work in collaboration with the AFL, with the media, with the clubs, and take fans' views to them so that we get the best fans' experience. So I guess the more people that want to sign up or follow us on social media, all they do is just Google AFL Fans Association. You'll come to our website, and it doesn't cost anything to sign up. And you can um, see all the things we're doing. You can email us. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and give your opinions there. Uh, the more people, the merrier. We uh, listen to everyone. And we take, as I said, uh, those views. We do surveys. We've done extensive surveys um, last year and the year before. Mm. And uh, that's on our website, the results of our surveys. The AFL have a copy of our survey. The media have a copy of our survey. They know what fans want. They know what the top five issues are that fans are asking for. So everything's out there. And I guess the more people that sign up, the more people that um, give us their opinion, the more we've got to take to the AFL and say, this is what fans are saying. So, yeah, that's where, where we think we are heading as an association is uh, you have the Players Association, you have the Coaches Association, you even have the Umpires Association. Mm. And we just want to be considered as one of those associations when they talk about players and coaches and umpires association, we should be seen in the same light as fans association. And I think we're going to get there. It'll take a bit of time. Mm. But the fact that we're talking with the AFL regularly and I can uh, get information from them and meet with them face-to-face is a, is a great thing. Yeah, definitely, Ron. It's it's a great thing. And with without the fans, the game wouldn't exist, of course. Well, thanks very much for coming on 3CR. I really appreciate your time and um, hopefully to speak in the future and enjoy the footy. Pleasure, and any time, uh, happy to talk. And, uh, yes, I hope everyone enjoys the finals and may the best team win. And if uh, I think if I had to guess who's going to win, it could be any of the eight. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it rolls, Ron. We don't know. It's the great thing about sport. Uh, thanks <laughs> very much, right. Ron. Uh, that, and that was amazing. Uh, thanks very much. And that was uh, Ron Isco, AFL Fans Association President. We were discussing all things finals, tickets, and everything in between, Claudia. Excellent. Yes, so good luck with those tickets today, Patch. Uh, Thank you. I think I did my time trying to get Taylor Swift tickets (laughs) with my daughters unsuccessfully, so um, I'm not going to be diving in for the footy tickets but anyway yeah yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a whole it's a, it's a whole different world i think trying to go for tickets for anything uh, <laughs> yes it's like it's like everyone jumps on the bandwagon the moment the big event comes along they, they yeah. jump on it to it claudia yes. okay we got to go into our next poetry segment now this is sajik Kaur kolsa with kushdil Sukhjit Kaur Kolsa is a passionate storyteller who has a multidisciplinary creative practice as a producer, writer, filmmaker, theatre maker, performer and educator. She's executive director of the Blue Room Theatre in Perth and recently released her debut hip-hop single, Collectibles. Kushstil, Happy Heart. I arrive at JFK after 29 endlessly elongated uneventful hours. I walk through Manhattan, reenacting childhood movie scenes. I climb the building and bridges, taking in this iconic city. I taste every bagel, pretzel, pizza slice and local delights. But what I'm surprised to find is your queen's home is where my heart feels happy. I see the tapestry of cultures, vibrant, bold, characters in conflict unfolding their stories. I feel the comfort of chaos. 
My inner monologue quickly switches to an old white guy venturing through exotic lands narrating his journey to find the best masala chai or something spicy like that. The Guyanese cuisine sets the scene as Punjabi pugs pulsate in Nissan pulsars, reggae melodies morph into the night, all intertwined like a symphony of tongues. I'm envious of this country where every subculture has a space to find its home. I'm relieved to escape the pasty panorama of Perth, upholding uptight British politeness, so I embrace this freeing yet polluted air, slowly, slowly expressing my true desi self. We blast Babu's Red Gundy Challenger on the way to the kids' swim class, whizzing past store names and street signs that blow my mind like Gudwara Avenue, Lassi Corner, Apanar Bazaar, Singh Farm, Satgur Signs, King and Queens, Punjabi Jutti, where the bloody hell am I? We walk the malls of Flushing, the American dream screams at me from all angles, Marshalls and Burlington sweating consumerism by the kilo. My trip coincides with a nugget kirtan, a swarm of Punjabis buzzing. I hear blaring kirtan and kata, stalls of jalebi, kulfi, pani, puri. We push through thousands waiting in laborious lines for mouth-watering chole bature, while boys and men stare at me with that deli death stare. I feel my mum's big chef energy channeling through my body as I spend most of my days in the Big Apple, cooking scones, pesto and dal makhani, chopping fresh watermelon and mint, sharing my love language with my kin. I forage for Aussie favourites from Queen's Library to read to your children. I try on your salvar kameezes and anarkalis, feeling more and more beautiful with each glittering chunni. I cook my famous veggie lasagna for your extended family. We sit around your fire pit sharing poetry and childhood tales, sipping on ginger ale and flavoured bubbly water, swaying on your porch swing like separated sisters. You get teary-eyed as your firstborn reads from the heart. I feel special for witnessing priceless family memories. While your toilets might swirl the other way and my time with you has only been seven short days, I want to subscribe to your queen's way of life. My mannerisms were once deprived, but now my mother tongue has come alive. I looked into her big blue eyes. This is what I saw. I saw my... October is the month for all your country and Americana good times. Sleep at the Wheel, Thornby Theatre with Summer Dean on the 13th. Melissa Carper, Brunswick Ballroom on the 16th. Willie Watson at the Mimo Music Hall on the 19th, Thornbury Theatre on the 20th, and Menian Town Hall on the 21st. Jenny Don't and the Spurs, the Pink Stones and the Burrs Band play Brunswick Ballroom on the 12th and the Barwon Club Geelong on the 13th. All this and more this October. Love Police supports 3CR. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel, yet gas exploration by sonic explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool, who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter.
And you're back listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And before those announcements, we were hearing Kushdil by Sukjit Kaur Kolsa for our Poetry Month. And uh, if you want to find out more about Poetry Month, you can go to redroompoetry.org forward slash projects forward slash poetry month and uh, they'll have their whole program and lots of information about how you can get involved uh, with poetry whether you're a first-time poet or just want to listen to lovely poetry so I think that's pretty much it for our show today we're run out of time we had a bit of variety there poetry football yeah and uh, some hefty politics with uh, looking at Iran and and genocide. Yeah, it was definitely a uh, definitely a big show. Um, so um, very much, very much. If you want to listen back to it, if you just missed out on the show, you can go back to three crorgau Go to podcasts. Go to Wednesday breakfast. And then you'll be able to go to the 30th of August show. Um, so it'll be that all there. It probably comes out this afternoon. Um, so that's the great thing about the podcast, Claudia. You can jump on and listen back to it and listen back to the whole thing from, I think, 2020 if you want to. So you go back into COVID times if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, when we were producing them remotely from home. Okay. Well, thank you to all our guests and thank you to listeners for tuning in this week. We'll be back Uh, next week. Same time, same place. Have a good one. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.